Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Alaska Cast. Today, we have Amy Galloway, Alaska's 2020 National Teacher of the Year, joining us. Amy, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks, Kuba. Fantastic. And tell us a little bit, everyone, again, I, we, we talked a little bit before the show, and I was saying that everybody that I've spoken with, um, that I've talked with, that has been in your classes or knows you even a little bit, is not the least bit surprised that you were chosen as 2020 Teacher of the Year. Can you... Tell us a little bit about your journey as an educator and kind of how you started teaching as a profession. Sure. That's such a good question. Um, so it's interesting. Before I was a teacher, I was actually an archaeologist, and I worked for Rengo St. Elias National Park. And I worked for them for about four or five years. And what was so interesting is that it, while it was super exciting, or I mean, like I flew around in helicopters and you know, learn to shoot guns and slept out in the backcountry. It just wasn't very rewarding. And so my, um, my winter job, because that was a summer seasonal job, my winter job was to be a teacher aide in Glen Allen School in um, Glen Allen, Alaska. And I just fell in love with being able to, like, to work with young people and help them, like, unlock closed doors that they had inside their heads and inside their hearts, like, oh, I can't do this or I can't, can't do that. Like, it's amazing how much young people don't really realize that they think they can't do things. And so I was like, this is amazing. So I decided to go back to school and got my teaching degree up here at UAS. And then I... Um, my first teaching job was actually in an Inupiaq village called Nooksit, and I worked at Nooksit Trapper School um, for two years, and just, I mean, it, I knew that I was in the right profession immediately, because it was so hard. Like, teaching is freakishly hard. It's hard in terms of the amount of time and energy you spend, but it's hard also because, like, Every day you do something, you're like, oh, I could do that a little bit better. I could do that a little different. And so it was so hard. But those connections I made with students up there, watching them kind of come alive and find their voice, it, it's absolutely just like phenomenal. Um, so I taught up there for two years. And then um, because of that, my husband at the time, who's my now ex-husband, was in a was in an accident, and so we really did want to stay, but it was just it was hard to stay up in a village where you could really only fly in. And so then we, um, I taught um, taught Homer in uh, Bosmasenka outside of Homer and Bosmasenka School, and again, an amazing community um, of just you know excited learners. Um, but Homer didn't have a hockey rink at the time, so that was, like, kind of hard to stay there. So mm-hmm. um, ended coming and then ended up back in Fairbanks, um, where I've been teaching here in Fairbanks schools for, who 17 years. This is my 17th year in the Fairbanks school district. Wow. Um, so, yeah. Awesome. And you, I, I remember you from West Valley High School, um, and my girlfriend um, actually had you as, um, I think, a middle school teacher. In uh, seventh grade. 
Yeah, yeah. It's a such a, a small world, a small community. Um, but for your classes um, and part of your job and kind of going beyond your job at West Valley, you are also a big part of the uh, We the People program at uh, West Valley. W- w- what is that like? What does that program seek to do? Sure. So um, it's so funny because I do remember your girlfriend from seventh grade. She was on Team Wildfire, Randy Smith. Um, <laughs> but so even if I haven't taught government in my career, like every class I've ever taught has always been about civics and civic engagement. Like the idea that um, every single one of us in this community has to participate in order for this democratic experiment to work. And I think that a lot of times young people are, their voices um, are, are silenced because adults are nervous about what they're going to say. Um, I think their voices are, I think you silence, they silence themselves sometimes because of fear and insecurity. And so, you know, in a representative democracy, it's absolutely imperative that every person participates um, and believes that they're part of the fabric of the, of the community. And so the We the People program um, is a, a specific engagement, civic education program through the Center for Civic Education that um, it focuses on a deep study of the Constitution and our founding documents, like the big why behind our, go- our government, and then applying the concepts and the docu- the concepts and the concepts inside the document to um, more modern issues. Um, the program is really interesting. We the People is, um, it has an elementary component, upper elementary component, a middle school component, and a high school component. And one of the things that sets the We the People program apart is that um, besides their deep um, focus on the Constitution, is the end, the culminating activity of the We the People curriculum is to do a simulated congressional hearing um, as teams in your class. So I always say, right, democracy is a team sport. It can't be done individually. And so the simulated congressional hearing is students work in groups of three, four, or five. They're given them like a big, giant constitutional question, like um, – is what is judicial review and how is it established and in what way um, does it mesh with, does it support or go against representative democracy? And do you think the courts are too powerful in today's political system? So we get a big question like that. Yeah. And then they write one speech answering that with the emphasis being, Start with the Constitution, then apply the ideas of our our founding philosophers, like the Federalist Papers um, and other philosophers, and then look at current events, current issues. So they write this speech together collaboratively, which I tell you, one thing high school students don't like to do is collaborate and work together because I think they've done a lot of group work in which the teacher doesn't really manage um, how work together so one person does everything and collaboration is a freakishly hard 
skill. And so this program, like one of the things I do is I teach students actually how to collaborate in a team and how to do that. So anyway, they collaborate as a team, write this one four-minute speech. They only have four minutes. That's it. Four minutes for that giant question. And then I have, um, I get experts in the community. I've had every mayor since I've lived in this town has participated as a judge, attorneys, legislators, Scott Kawasaki, John Coghill um, have come in often. Uh, Grier Hopkins has come in. I've had judges come in. I've um, current Supreme Court Justice Sue Carney um, used to come in and help quite a bit when I'd be a judge. Um, I get um, professors from the university, Dr. Lovecraft, uh, um, Dr. Erlander, Dr. Cole, Terrence Cole, were big supporters, you know, big supporters of the program. And so the students take this speech that they've written and they read it to this panel of expert judges. After their speech is over, they put it away and they put all their notes away. And then the judges, uh, have, there's an impromptu question and answer period for about um, when it's in the competition, it's six minutes. And the students answer collaboratively. Like they may agree, they may disagree, they help each other out. But the idea is the judges get a sense of what is their real knowledge on this. So they'll ask more probing questions, more opinion questions, asking them to apply the knowledge. And so what this does, like that experience, students are terrified. They're like, what? We don't want to. We can't testify to the mayor, to a professor. I mean, because the questions are hard and they don't know what they're going to be. But what happens at the end of that experience, once students have done that hearing and they've had their partners there with them and they've struggled through agreements and disagreements and they see that they've done it, all of a sudden, this political process of testifying before the school board or you go into the borough assembly, all of a sudden politicians become just like any other person and they realize that they have a voice that they can dialogue with these experts and there's not, while it's so nerve wracking, there's nothing to truly be scared of that, that their voice is, is as important as any adult's voice, as anybody else's voice. And so the We The People program really creates an intense sense of efficacy in, in students. And then the We the People competition, it, it just takes it one step further where students um, actually take that model and they compete um, against other schools. Mm-hmm. And instead of just doing one speech, they'll do two or three speeches. Wow. And West Valley this year, they, they won the statewide high school competition. Is that right? We did. We won this year. We won last year. We won the year before. Wow. Yeah. We, yeah, we have a pretty, we have a vibrant program at West Valley. The, the concern is that um, it can be challenging. It's, it's, it's tough content and it's a lot for some teachers, you know, like being able to, to put their students and the spotlight like that can be, it can be challenging for any number of reasons, we also have a curriculum that's so dense. A lot of teachers will say they don't have time to do something like this because it takes an intense amount of time away from, you know, doing other curricular pieces. And so 
the issue right now in our state, well, I mean, I think West Valley is amazing and I'm not going to down my students at all, but we haven't had a lot of schools to compete against yeah. in the last seven, eight, nine years. It's, um, the program has gone from about 15 schools from Anchorage, Matsu, and Fairbanks participating to two to three schools only from Fairbanks participating. Wow. On, on a statewide level, the only schools that are competing are from Fairbanks? Correct. Right now, the only schools that participate in the We the People competition um, right now are West Valley, North Pole, and Hutchinson High School. Ms. Um, Jeanette Peterson um, is trying to build a program there. So they participated this year. Wow. Are there any extraneous sort of resources given to teachers that try to put this forward, this program forward in their schools? Or is it sort of, a, they give you, um, you're given kind of like a, a dense instruction packet and kind of told good luck? Yeah, that's a really good question. So there is, a, I think, a very good um, teacher text that does explain this, but it is a pretty daunting process. So for the la up until last year, previous to this, there have been professional developments that teachers can attend to learn how to do this program. So I got hooked into this program because my um, one of my mentors, Maida Buckley, was running this program, and she's like, you should do this, you should do this. So it was me and like 20 other teachers from around the state, and there was a week-long institute on – basically the curriculum and how to implement the curriculum. And the model was wonderful. The model was they would have professors from around the country, expert professors who would lecture in the morning about the topic. So we could get a really deep understanding of, say, um, Federalist 10 and, and the role of factions in a representative democracy or uh, the role of checks and balances in the impeachment process, right? So it was the professors would be in the morning and then in the afternoon would be mentor teachers who would talk about and give examples on how to teach this content to students. And then later on, the last thing we would do is we as teachers all had hearing questions and we had to do hearing. So we had to do the exact same thing that students were doing, so we understood how they felt. So this professional development was in place for years. I got lucky to do that. And then funding was cut about 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. Congress cut funding for the center for We the People. Um, they, they cut all earmarks, and they considered it an earmark. And then once that happened, those statewide institutes stopped, but a new grant, was established called the James Madison Legacy Project, in which teachers, the idea was not to necessarily do the competition, but would be to get this into every classroom, just do it as a final or as a unit. And so yeah. for the last four years, I've been a mentor for that program, and I mentored um, Wade Jones at North Pole and Danette Peterson at Hutchinson, and they're the, and so so they now are attempting it and doing it in their classes. And so we've had a lot of teachers in the state go through the training, but not, not all of them. And so the ones who go through the training tend to have a lot more success and feel more confident and more prepared 
to 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 use it in their classroom. Yeah, that seems like a kind of a monumental task that's extraneous. That's more than you know teaching class. Um, you have to go kind of above and beyond, and you have to be prepared, and you have to know a lot of that yourself, right? To to be able to teach that. Um, kind yeah, of, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, I was gonna say it's it's so hard. Like it's so hard to take a risk as a teacher because we're on stage, yeah. and so the idea of giving students these tough questions that you might not know the answer to seems like as a teacher, we're not allowed to do that. But the reality is like, I I think the the thing that upsets me so much is the reality is as a teacher, I'm never going to know everything. I mean, my hope is I know more than you, but you might know more than me. I mean, I mean, Kuba, I remember you in my government class and I remember that you knew more about the citizenship test than most citizens. Like you had a, a strong working knowledge of other things that I didn't know. And so I think one of the things that really actually prevents teachers from doing this is this paradigm that teachers are the givers of knowledge and students are, you know, should be empty vessels to be filled up instead of, you know what, as teachers, let's just take a risk. Let's go out there. We know this is good for students. And let's like, let's flip the script and, and tell students we're facilitators of your knowledge. I'm going to help you find the answers. I definitely will know more than you in some things, but maybe some things I don't. And together we'll find those things out. And it's kind of like we're partners in the learning journey instead of this teacher, student, authoritarian, like subordinate relationship. And I think if more, if more schools, teachers and parents Mm -hmm. could realize that, like, that relationship allows so much more learning to happen. I think more teachers would feel safe to step on on that limb. The other thing is that it takes a ton of time. And I'm going to say teachers, we are overworked incredibly. We're, we are very tired and we're doing, you know, we're doing a hundred different things a day. And so trying to pick up something new like that can be, it can be just that one more thing that we just don't have time for. Yeah, I think I think a lot of people look at the uh, fact that teachers don't work during the summer and pair it with a uh, an idea that there isn't much to to teaching. But I have I come from a long line of teachers in my own family, um, and because of the mix of um, I think the 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 pretty heavy workload along with um, sort of a lack of, of recognition, a lot of people in my family that have had long teaching careers have discouraged me from kind of going down that, uh, down that path. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the state of Alaska especially, um, I, I've gone back and visited uh, different schools after graduation, and what struck me the last time I went to West Valley is how large the class size seemed. Um, and I know there have been studies that have pointed out that um, larger classes are, are obviously more difficult to to teach well. Um, have you felt that impact at West Valley or any other oh, kind 100%. of budget-related cuts? Oh, yeah, 100%. I mean, and, and it's like it's, it's things like that that also make teaching, like doing innovative things outside the box, much more challenging. So when I first started teaching at West Valley, I will say my job was way easier for a couple of reasons. One, I had, I felt I had all the resources I need. Two, my class sizes were about 20, 25. 
And three, I wasn't, there wasn't a lot of extra mandates or other things to do. Um, and today I find like my class sizes on average are 28 to 32. Like I currently have 32 students and I have 32 students in my government class. And so for me trying to like get this deep connection with them to help them take these risks that I want them to do with the people, it just makes it, it makes it so much harder. And then the, the other piece of that is, is in Alaska, because we don't have a retirement plan, we don't have a pension for our teachers. We're not attracting, like the, we're not attracting, we're not keeping the best teachers. And so teachers that used to do the We the People program, I know, I know too, who have left the state and they're doing it in another state now, but they've gone to New Hampshire and California because in those states they have a retirement. And so not only can we not attract new teachers to kind of, you know, really quality new teachers who are willing to take these risks, we are not retaining the quality teachers that we have here because because of budget cuts, pink slips, big class sizes, and a lack of a retirement plan. You know, teachers, we don't get Social Security in this state either. So oh. I, I currently have a pension um, because I'm a Tier 2 employee. But any, but I don't get Social Security because I have a pension. However, any teacher hired after 2008 is in Tier 3, and those teachers don't have a defined benefit plan. So not only do they not have a retirement plan, but they also don't get Social Security. So it, it, it's really, we see a lot of great teachers. In fact, one of the previous teachers of the year, I can't think of his name right now, but one of the previous teachers of the year left the state last year or the year before because he needed to do what was best for his family long term. Yeah, that that is a, I mean, that's a reasonable thing to want to do, especially if you're raising a, a family. Um, I, I know that as part of your, um, your award of the 2020 Teacher of the Year, um, you went on a either a trip or a series of trips to the lower 48 to connect with um, other Teachers of the Year. Could you tell us a little bit about that? And if, um, you know, if this is a common problem, is Alaska the only state or is this sort of a nationwide issue? <clears throat> sure. Great question. So I, I've just been on one trip so far. I was at a Event. The program is called CCSSO that runs the Teacher of the Year program, and they had an event called an Induction, in which all the Teachers of the Year and their coordinators meet, and um, basically we're given wonderful professional development on teacher leadership, how to amplify our voice, um, how to essentially lead and represent teachers and students, and um, in talking to those other teachers. I don't, I did not talk to any other state that didn't have a retirement plan. Mm-hmm. However, I did talk to other states who had very low pay. And so our pay, um, would have been higher than those other states. However, the issues of, um, of retirement, no, that, that seemed to be, I mean, I'm sure I can't speak 100%. I'm sure there's another state out there, but 
in the at least the 25 or 30 other states who I know I spoke to about it, um, they had pensions. But they all, I will say, every teacher talked about, you know, budget and mm-hmm. in some ways lack of lack of support from either community or legislature uh, as being an issue. No, no state was like, we're flush with money, we're set, <laughs> but... Um, I, I will say there was definitely a number of teachers there who were talking about fundraising to get iPads in their schools or fundraising to get their kids to go on field trips. Like, um, and so I think it's a common theme that there aren't a lot of resources. There aren't adequate resources, but there's, as teachers, what we do, we, we find we make it work. We make it work because we are inspired by our students and we know that public education is the cornerstone of the republic. And so we do what it takes. And it's my hope, you know, in this role as Alaska Teacher of the Year for 2020 is to kind of elevate teachers as a profession because one thing that is very interesting is that the other some of the other states had incredibly robust teacher of the year programs um they're all very different and so it's my hope this year you know to for all teachers in the state of alaska is to kind of elevate our voice and remind the community and the legislators that more money doesn't necessarily solve the problem, but it's not going to help make it better. And that as teachers, we are serving our students and our communities in exemplary capacity. We just need to be at the table. We need to be at the table, the stakeholder table, when making a lot of these decisions. And I think oftentimes decisions about education, especially in the state of Alaska, are made without educators at the table. Yeah, I think I think you might very well be right. What um, kind of changing track just a little bit when um, you, I know one of the most, the, the trip that you were on included a visit to uh, Google um, in, I, I think it was California, but um, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, no, it's California, Palo Alto and Mountain View. Palo Alto. Um, and one thing that's always struck me, even when I was going through um, high school and even middle and elementary school, um, was that the the teaching model itself always seemed to be just a little bit behind the times um, in that by the time lesson plans are are written, the world's changed a little bit, um, and there isn't a lot of flexibility there. Is that something that came up when I think of, of mo- rapid modern change and modernity? I think of Google. Is that something that they talked about there? Um, a little bit. So what was interesting is one of our keynote speakers was Sal Khan, of the CEO of Khan Academy. And so he talked, he talked quite a bit about you know, using technology um, to personalize learning so that like that, what you're talking about, that clunkiness is kind of that where we, we would teach to a full class of students and 
some of you get it, some of you don't, oh, well, we're moving on, right? Mm -hmm. Like, so rigid, and he talked about, like, and, and he talked about the concept of we really need to be able to personalize learning for each student, and it's near impossible for teachers to do that exceptionally well on everything, and so resources like Khan Academy leverage tech resources to help students then be able to get the things that, like, say, I couldn't necessarily teach you about, or some, maybe you were absent for a week on a ski trip, and you come right. back, and it's just like, oh, well, what do I do? And it's just like, I'm like, well, it sucks to be you, right? Yeah. So right. instead, you can, right, go to Khan Academy, or, right, there's ways to catch up instead of have these polls. And, and additionally, the Google employees talked a lot about their schedule and what it was like to be a Google employee, and they were very autonomous in many ways, right? Mm-hmm. They could work from home or different places. They just had to get their job done. They were provided wonderful food, great resources, um, 20% time to pursue a project that they're passionate about. And you should have seen the teachers. The teachers were just, so many were just awestruck. They're like, wait, what? You can, you can, you can eat as much food as you want here. Like the food is just free or you can come in at different times, like whatever you want. And, and the teachers were so struck by that. And it, it was so disheartening to me because I was like, yeah, this is the workplace that we're not preparing students for. Right. And so what I think was really interesting about that, the time down there at induction was they didn't actually teach us about that, but they put us in all these opportunities for us to see that our job really is preparing students for jobs that may not exist yet Mm -hmm. and for a community that needs us, that needs our students to be active participants. And so what I walked away with, what I went in knowing, but I walked away out with even more was that it's absolutely critical that we are teaching students skills and dispositions of how to be an effective learner, to have autonomy and control over their own learning and not to not to be passive consumers of their education, but to be active creators of their own education. Um, and so I've been lucky in that I've involved myself in CTE education in the last five years. And so I've been to career conferences and other things and I'm well aware how far behind the times we are. So the good news is Fairbanks North Suburb School District has taken on personalized learning, mm-hmm. like a way to help achieve that as one of their missions, which is absolutely wonderful. But it comes down to, once again, as teachers, here's a, a new initiative and I've been teaching for 20 years, and now I have to take the time to go back and retool everything. It just takes a lot of time, and it takes a lot of training. And I don't think we always get all the time and training we need. So we know it's best for kids, but we're exhausted, and we need a life preserver. And sometimes instead of growing us a life preserver, we get a brick. <laughs> like, 
yeah, well, we know it's good for kids to do it. So, like, teachers, we want to do all these great things for kids. And our district is, I think, our district is cutting edge in that way. Mm-hmm. It just, I'd love to see more resources and support, more time for teachers to make the shift. We're a battleship turning in a river, right? We it, we just, we need time and resources and, and support instead of, like, yeah, hurry up, do it now. And, oh, teachers, like. You guys, are, our reading scores are terrible. We're not going to give you more money. Like, none of that helps the initiative to, to make education more responsive for 21st century jobs. Right, and that's something my, my, my mother is a, um, an ELL tutor um, in the same school district. And it's, it's not quite the, the same thing. Um, as she was a teacher in Poland before coming here to the U.S., so she has some experience teaching, but she's complained uh, to me that it seems like every year she has to do a little bit more. She has to learn another system. She gets a little bit less support, um, and she has to just take on a little bit more of the responsibility. Um, And you you spoke a little bit about reading test scores, and that that to me, those standardized tests have always kind of been, um, you know, kind of the pinnacle of rigid because they're essentially the same nationwide. Uh, what are your, what, are, what is your opinion on standardized tests and how they're used to sort of spread out funding um, among all the schools? Sure. So in our state, interestingly enough, I think we're one of the least tested states compared to many other states um, because we have no statewide, like, mandatory we have statewide peak testing but we don't have like um a, uh, like a civic test you have to pass to graduate because we don't have a high school graduation qualifying exam anymore um what we have is the peak test and so um i don't think we're over tested in our state but i think there is an over emphasis on what those test score numbers mean. And what I mean by that is when we get those numbers, those numbers are an average of across the state, right? So a number, and I can't say for sure, but some numbers like on the NAEP, the National Assessment of Educational Progress, it's a nationwide test. And um, our students, our third graders are last or second to last. We're on our peak testing. Our students are all you know, like a huge percentage of our students are below grade level in reading. And so that's important information to have. However, the NAEP is taking every, every score in our state and averaging it. So we have a serious equity issue mm-hmm. between urban and rural Alaska schools. And so absolutely no way you can take some of our rural or bush schools and put their scores together with ours. So like they don't have the same teachers, they don't have the resources. So what we have going on on rural access kind of gets all um, mushed in with that, with that score. So I think it's a, it's unfair to say we're going to score all like our whole state, our whole education system is terrible because of one number. And then the peak testing, I mean, the good thing about that is you can see how your students are doing by school. And so I think that is valuable information. I think it's valuable to see 
where students are at there. The problem is when that's the only story. If that, you know, like the TED Talk about the, you know, the danger of a single story, the danger of test scores is that they become a single story for mm-hmm. a school. And so I think I, I am a fan of having some sort of standardized test to measure progress and for students to see where they're at. But it's just one. It's one piece of many pieces of information. I mean, I think every school should have a score for service to their community. What is their score for service to their community? What is their score for innovation? What are they doing new in their school? So, like, there should be more than just that literacy and math score because that is not a whole student. And the danger of that is that what schools teach to, and when that's the single story, what gets left out is science and civics and teaching a whole student. So I think I think our state is not in a terrible place with our testing. I think that information is used to push an agenda against public schools. Hmm. And that's the danger of those numbers. Gotcha. And speaking of civic engagement, um, you're also a kids voting li- liaison. And beyond that, I also see you often... Um, either in person or on social media, um, saying something along the lines of, or putting a hashtag, you know, thank you for saving the Republic. What do you mean by that? And and what does the kids voting sort of program seek to do? Okay, sure. That's great. Um, so kids voting is it's actually a nationwide program. And the purpose of kids and kids voting is K-12, elementary through high school. And the idea is that being an active citizen, being able to go out and cast an informed vote, mm-hmm. that's not something we're born with. That's something that has to be taught. But I always say citizens aren't born, they're made. And so the kids voting curriculum and the process of kids voting where young people, children, get to go vote on the actual ballot, right? They get to cast their vote. Well, one is the ballots we have, either we do the municipal election and then we do state and national elections. The idea is it's, it's like a driver's permit. It's the practice of how to vote before you get out into the world and have to vote. Because knowing what district you're in, that part, knowing that you have a district, knowing that you have to go vote in that district, knowing that your representative in that district is going to be different than your friend who lives across town in another district. So, I mean, I am a firm believer that local government, the government closest to us, local and state government is so important for students to understand how to interact, how to engage and how to influence that government. But that government is the hardest to learn about. Mm-hmm. How do you like, my students come to me, some of them as seniors, and don't know there is even a mayor of our town, much less who that mayor is or what that mayor does. Right, or that so the, there are two mayors, it. one for the borough, one for the city. Right, and one for the city, right? And they, like, they'll know someone's name. They'll know there's a name mayor, but they don't know what that do, you know what he does or what she does. And so kids voting, is it's, it's the learner's permit program for voting. Because when they go vote, 
when they cast their ballot in high school, at least they have to know what district they live in and then what ballot to choose. And it, it teaches them how to start deciding what do I want to see in a public official? Who do I, you know, what characteristics do I want? Um, where do I go to vote? How does a ballot work? Oh, you mean I can only choose one? You can't cross it out, right? So it's a great, great learning tool to to demystify that process. And in fact, um, I was talking with a former student um, who is now currently down in the legislature working, um, he's interning in the legislature this year, and they're working on a bill to allow 16-year-olds to early register to vote. And that would work so well in conjunction with kid voting because the problem with kid voting is it's called kid voting, right? right. Uh, like young people, are like, I'm a kid, right? So if at the same time they're 16 year you know, we're doing kids voting in high school, we can say, hey, you can actually register to vote for real now so that when you turn 18, you'll actually, you'll be registered to vote. So I think it would really um, support the, the kid voting concept of, preparing young people for when they get out of high school to actually know how to vote because nobody else really teaches that. And so that my phrase, save the Republic, I would love that hashtag to go viral. I'm trying to make it one. I don't even really know what a hashtag is. Like I get it, but you're doing um, great. That's exactly what a hashtag is. Am I? Am I? Am I? I feel like at some point anybody's going to be like, okay, boomer to me without (laughs) I'm doing it. But, um, no, like the concept is like every generation thinks that, right? These young people, young people always think adults have it all together. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, no, we don't. We don't. Voter turnout is low. Most people, a lot of people don't vote. They don't know how to vote. They don't know who they're voting for. They're voting for who their friends voted for. And so my right. co- my Save the Republic is that, we need you. We need the young people who are actually in school learning about these things now to know that we need them. Historically, it's always been young people, right, that have pushed for change, who have demanded that America fulfill her promise, right, of truly we the people. And so I expect my students to get out there and vote informed to run for office, to work in the legislature, to volunteer, to make podcasts that help their community, right? Like (laughs) Save the Republic is what you're doing. And it's not something you do when you're 40, 50. It's not something these old people do that are in government. It's for you. You guys need to lead the way because we're kind of messing it up right now. So we need you to save the Republic along with us. Thank you, Amy. I, I yeah. that that means a lot. And it, it, just out of curiosity, um, is that Casey that's writing that bill, working on that bill in the legislature for the sixteen? It, it's Aiden. It's Aiden. Aiden. Aiden Ernest. Perfect. Aiden working with um, Representative Hopkins. Okay. Fantastic. I think that's a wonderful idea. I I recently looked into what the um, the numbers were for the last, I think, borough-wide election. Um, the, the number of people that voted was very small. It was pretty disturbing. I mean, there's a community here of, of nearly 100,000 people, um, and I think it, the voting turnout was less than 10% of that. 
um, very small numbers here. Yeah, I think the voter turnout in this last municipal election was maybe more like 18 or 20 percent, but it was it was very it was very low. And it's it's so disheartening to me to hear students say my vote doesn't matter. What does it matter? Who cares? Nothing ever changed. Like, I don't understand. Like, it's so disheartening because, like, the republic will fail and die if we don't believe in our institutions and that our voice in those institutions matter. So like kids voting, I, my job is never to teach students what to think. Mm -hmm. My job is to help students learn how to think critically for themselves and realize that their vote matters. So the greatest kids voting moment I think I've ever had was uh, last year in the in the state house race for um it was district one house district one i'm pretty sure and it was Catherine dodge and bart laban and they were tied they were tied when i got when i pulled up the results and on the day after election day my students came in and they're like let's see the result like they were actually excited to see the results and I was like, see, look, see, voting doesn't, right? And so they were, it was exciting. They were excited to see the results. I had also um, held a candidate forum. We have a, I think we've had our fifth annual candidate forum at West Valley. So we had actually had all the legislators at the school for a candidate forum during the school day that all the students could attend if they wanted to. And um, and so when they saw that Catherine Dodge and Bart LeBond were tied, wow. I one of my students was like, I know someone that lives there that didn't go vote. Maybe they would have made, I was like, they, they would have changed the whole election. They would have made they the difference. They could have changed the whole election. Yeah. And then they're like, well, what happens now? And so it was like, it was like they were watching a little reality TV show. So I was like, well, and then they did a recount and then they thought Bart was on one by one vote. And they're like, and I actually had students who were volunteering at that precinct. And wow. they were like, that's insane. Like, it was like they were so invested in it. And that wouldn't have been the same without a program like Kids Voting. I mean, I still could have done it, but with Kids Voting, I had the candidate forum, right? And then we studied about the candidates and the ballot measures. And then we had Kids Voting results and we looked at the actual results. And we saw that our voter turnout at West Valley High School was actually higher than the voter turnout for the borough. And so, like, all of those things together, never once did I tell a student how to vote. And never once did we debate on who to vote for. You know, you don't have to do that, but you can think critically about the process and see that the process is valid and critical and that, uh, you know, we have to believe in our institutions and participate in them for them to actually work. And, like, the kids were just so jazzed. Like, they were like, I can't wait to vote. I can't wait to vote. And so when you have local elections like that, that really can show the power of a vote, it can it makes such a big difference. And so if I could have registered those kids to vote right then and there, uh, I mean, it would have even been more powerful. So I really hope that bill gets, you know, goes somewhere. Yeah, it sounds like a fantastic idea. Kind of uh, mm-hmm. on the same lines of, of empowering younger people, when a when someone's graduating from West Valley, they're 18 or maybe 17 or 19 years old, and they're, they're about to go out into the world, what, what, piece of advice do you tell them? (laughs) 
Oh, that's an interesting question. I don't usually give much advice because I you don't, don't. That's that's true. I you might not. I guess I remember you have probably given as many or more sort of um, graduation commencement speeches of anybody else I know <laughs> that at West Valley. You get chosen many, many times over and over again. Maybe instead of a one-on-one -on -one advice, what do you usually say in those speeches? Sure, sure. And just to correct the record, Heather DiMario probably has given the most speeches. I love her to death. Shout out to Heather. Um, so I think you know, when, what I try to impart to all my students, I, I think this would be it, is inside, like, we are all more powerful than we could ever believe. I think it's safe to believe we can't do things and that we're small or things can't get done because then we don't have to do stuff. But the reality is that you guys are so powerful. You have so much ahead of you and you and you know most of the things you already need to know you know it's just you have to un uncover them and so I always want young people I always want high school graduates to remember that like that see and feel the power within you and don't be scared of that don't be scared to go make noise. Don't be scared to try and make your mark. Like, don't be scared of your own power. Just find it and use it. I think that's wonderful advice. It's really a, it, it, there aren't really many overarching rules. You know, there are laws, obviously you should follow those, but beyond that, it's, it's, it's a canvas out there. Um, and yeah. It is. It is. And I think, so often our schools and our parents and adults, like we just want, what's your plan? What are you going to do? And what's the plan? And you need to have a plan. And, I think I remember when I was when I was 14, a freshman, um, we were doing some sort of evaluation where we were supposed to put together a 5, 10, 15, 20 year plan. Uh, and I still remember yeah. that because I, I had no idea. <laughs> And then you have no idea. And so then you're like, oh, my gosh, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm going to be the worst, right? Like, so it's not that we shouldn't teach you to plan. Definitely, we should put things out there. So I still think we should do those plans. But as we, as we tell you, as we encourage you to make a plan to pursue your path, instead of asking you, what do you want to do? Maybe reframe the question. So how do you want to give back? How do you want to, how do you want to make your mark? What's the life that you want to live and what do you need to do to get there? So let's figure out what you need to do to get to that end goal. But in, instead of like these rigid paths and do this and do that, like it just, it sucks the very life. It's I think it sucks the confidence out of you guys because there's so much pressure and social media and all of that. It's like, I got to have this plan. I got to have that plan. I got to be doing that. And it's like, no, you just, you gotta, you gotta live your truth. You gotta stand in your truth and beauty and you have to support yourself. Like those are my two things. Like stand in your truth and beauty and support yourself. And then whatever else comes from that, I think will end up being rewarding as you go down that path to what it is you want to do. So I, I, I do think that our, 
our system in trying to prepare you to have a plan so you can go out and have a job and be a functioning member of society and live the life of your dreams. I just think we, I think we go about it in a way that ultimately kind of freaks you all out instead Mm of opens you wide up. It it can be intimidating for sure. Um, I don't think many people think that many people know what they want when they graduate and it seems to be a whirlwind um, and many people that do know end up changing their minds anyway, it seems like. But those are wonderful that, words. Thank you. Yeah. Um, is there anything else you want to say to the people of Alaska, to former students, educators, legislators, anybody listening out there? Um, first, I want to say thank you to you. This is my first podcast. I feel very excited and honored. And I am, and I don't say this lightly, I'm very proud of you for doing this for our community, um, highlighting the positive and the joy in our community is as, as important as, as working to change the negative. And I think the only other thing I'd, I'd like to say is just like a huge thank you, a huge like open-hearted, heartfelt gratitude thank you um, to all the students who who go out there and who overcome those fears or who push through and and who you you are all working so hard to actually live the life of your dreams that will also help our communities. And so I know that none of that is possible without quality public education. So um, I am such a great supporter of public education as a way to fulfill the founding ideals of equality under the law, limited government power, and an enlightened and informed citizenry. And so I want to thank you and all the teachers and students who take that mission seriously and and who I believe go out and save the republic every day. Amy Galloway, Alaska's 2020 Teacher of the Year. Amy, thank you very much for being on the show. Thank you, Kuba. The Alaska Cow.